Hello and welcome back to Control Alt Delete. My guest today is Farah Store, the former editor in chief of Cosmopolitan and LUK, and the author of the book The Discomfort Zone, which I really enjoyed. I interviewed her for this podcast back in 2018, and I'm really excited to have her back on to discuss what's changed in that time, what she's been up to, including a new role at the newsletter platform Substack as its first head of UK writer partnerships, which we talk all about. Excitingly, since this episode was recorded, I've actually gone and launched my own Substack called The Hyphen and some of you may have known that I've had a newsletter for a very long time but I'm over on Substack now. I absolutely love it and I can't wait to do more on there. If you're a fan of this show and you like my writing or my books then that is the place to go and sign up because I'm really loving it on there. There's a sense of community. I love that I can talk to everyone but also put all of my stuff on there. The link is in the show notes below. So yeah, come over and say hi. Farah also has her own newsletter on Substack too called Things Worth Knowing, which is a brilliant read. It covers a wealth of different topics from friendship to love to careers. She also puts workshops on if you are a paying subscriber. And we talk about in this episode why she left magazines, the current landscape for creators, the power of newsletters, and in general, how writers can make money in new ways and navigate an evolving digital world. So lots of topics are up my street. I hope you enjoy this one. So here's the episode with Farah. So I am very excited to have Farah Store back on Control-Alt-Delete. So I went back into the archives and I couldn't believe it, but last time you came on, it was September 2018. So how many years ago is that? That's Oh my God, it's four years ago. Can you believe it? And it was at Cosmo. I came into your office. That's right. And we had a photo outside with all the logos and we had a really lovely conversation for anyone listening who wants to go back and listen about child-free life and work and... It was a lovely conversation. So thank you for coming back on. You're very welcome. And and how much has changed in those four years for both of us, really? I know. And it's so nice we're doing it in person. So that makes a difference. But this time I don't have my little tiny microphones in my backpack. We're actually in a nice studio. But um, good to see you again. And I am really enjoying your newsletter on Substack. And I know that you have a new role there. I just wanted to start there just to tell the listeners and explain the career change you've just been through. How how did it come about? How did it happen? What's it been like? Well, um, so yeah, so when we met, I was at Cosmo, I was editing Cosmo. Um, probably I was coming to the end of my time at Cosmo and, and probably at that point, though I hadn't told you, was had probably accepted the job at L, um, which was interesting because actually after Cosmo, I sort of thought I was done with editing. I sort of thought I'd done it for sort of seven seven years at that point. And I was thinking about what perhaps was beyond magazines for me. Um, and, and then Elle came along and it was fashion and I had sort of never got a break in fashion. I'd always tried, but sort of the fashion world didn't want me when I was younger. And so it seemed sort of too delicious really to, to turn down the opportunity. So after we met, shortly after I went and I edited Elle, which was amazing, like a really fantastic experience and sort of everything you want the fashion world to be. Um, particularly going in as an older woman, I think was really interesting for me. I think I always say to people, if I'd have gone into fashion at 22, it might have been quite a different experience to to going in at 40. Um, but But I went in and I knew, and I may have said this to you last time, but I've always said I only will ever stay sort of three to four years in an editor's role because 
it's a bit like politics. You know, after about four years, you need to ch- I've always felt you need a change of guard. And I always felt that a brand and an editor had sort of um, done its best work. That was That's what I always thought anyway for me. And so last summer it would have been, I would, knew I was coming up to three years at L, and, and most of that editorship, remember, was in COVID. So, mm-hmm. so most of it was actually done in my spare bedroom. Um, and I was thinking about, look, what would change look like for me? And it was quite scary because I knew I wanted to leave magazines. I'd done 23 years in them. It's a really long time. But I loved what I did. I loved magazines. It's everything I knew. I love working with writers. And so I was very scared about sort of what the future held for me. I was 43. I had all this experience. And yet I knew that, you know, magazines will be around, hopefully, for for, for much longer. But, but actually, I knew that actually perhaps they were not being as read as widely as they once were. And I remember very, very clearly, um, I don't know why I was doing this, but one day I was looking at what my outgoings were on media and I realised that I had been spending more on Substack subscriptions than I had been on magazines. And that was sort of like a moment of clarity for me, which is actually perhaps there is a way forward for me where I can continue working with writers and um, taking with me the bit that I'm really passionate about being an editor, which was actually not the fashion shows and not the free handbags, as lovely as they are, uh, and not the lovely sort of breakfast at the Walsey. It was working with writers and getting the best out of them. So I got in touch with Substack. We had a conversation. Their second biggest audience, as it turns out, was in um, the UK. And they just sort of said, look, do you want to give it a go? And and do you want to head up writer partnerships in the UK and, and sort of lead the UK side of the business? And it just felt like maybe it was a bit too early to leave. But but it just felt like too much, too good of an opportunity not to, mm. um, and and so here we are today. Yes, amazing. Do you know what? That's so funny. That's brought back something I think you said on the previous episode that you've always been about the words, and I remember you were bringing back some of that old culture of some of the magazines, those really in depth first person pieces, and that real kind of investigative journalism stuff that sort of fell by the wayside a little bit with women's magazines. And I remember you always wanted to kind of bring that back a bit. Yeah, I thought it was vital because actually when I took over Cosmo, everything sort of went bite size and people were catering to people's, what they thought were people's attention spans. And and um, actually I'd always believed, as you know, that surprise and delight is 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 part of the role of an editor is is to surprise and delight its audience. And actually, if you can keep them sustained in a long piece where they can sort of throw themselves and lose themselves in a piece of writing, that might be the best part of their day. And I think I also always felt very strongly, and, and many editors do think like this actually, that the writers are probably, and the stylists of course, but the writers, if you're on a writer's magazine, so if you just sort of put aside sort of people that work in beauty and style, um, but if we're talking about a writer's magazine, which Cosmo was very much a writer's magazine, your writers are your stars. And I think not everybody realises that. I think in magazines, sometimes people can think, well, we'll, if somebody leaves, we'll just get another writer in. But of Mm. course, that's not the reality. It doesn't work like that. You know, they're not dairy cows. You can't replace a writer for a writer. Um, You might have two writers doing the same job who are both equally well adept, but they will have different voices and they will attract a different audience. And I knew when I was at Cosmo that 
there were there was a large part of the audience who did come for Cosmo the brand, but they stayed for the Jenny Savins and the Katrina Innesses and the Amy Greers. They stayed for the writers who were writing. And I think... And you move around with the writer sometimes, don't you? If someone moves column, that's it's almost like the footballer changing teams. It's like, oh, I'm going to follow it's you totally there. right. That's totally right. And and so they are sort of your football players, your stars. And I guess that's what I liked about Substack is they recognised that people follow writers and actually writers, a little bit like musicians, although not to the same degree, but writers have big followings and people read their words and they devour everything they write. And I thought that was something that I wanted to sort of, um, I wanted to spend time with those writers and, and, and help those writers make money. Because I think that's the other thing is that, you know, journalism is an, it's the best career in the world. It's incredible. And you will come away with such a rich experience um, of life, really. But it's not well paid. It's a struggle. You know, most writers, that's why parents don't want any of their kids to be writers. They just go pale. It's because it's going to be really hard to make a living out of it. And what Substack does, of course, is is you write and your audience, some of them pay, some of them don't, but but they're directly paying you. And, you know, it means that a lot of writers now sort of have a a career opportunity ahead of them that perhaps they didn't have a couple of years ago. Yes. I don't know if you saw that interview with Candice Bushnell in Variety, I think it was, where about she was how much saying she was earning. about the heyday of Vogue and, and uh, Cosmo and all the others where she would be getting paid. I think she was saying six figures was a salary to work at one of those magazines. And actually, it's quite an exciting time where we know that people are earning really good money through writing in a different way. And that's really optimistic because otherwise what would happen to these brilliant writers. That's right. And, and you know, they, they deserve, you know, why should writers not deserve to make as good a living as a, a lawyer? You know what I mean? I mean, it is interesting that Candice Bushnell, because people are always like, well, Carrie Bradshaw couldn't afford to live in that brownstone. The reality is she could. If you're writing in the 90s, particularly for American magazines, I mean, you only have to read the Tina Brown book and, you know, houses in the Hamptons and, and sort of throwing literary parties in your New York brownstone were not unheard of. Um, you know, didn't Graydon Carter famously have like, like a beautiful brownstone in Greenwich Village? That's what it used to be. I, of course, missed all of this. Um and I don't. I think some people think that's quite precious the way that editors and writers used to be paid, but actually there there is a, a whole argument for they're being paid actually what they should be being paid. They're being paid properly for for um, giving a service. Yeah, and for an amazing skill. Before we talk about Substack and how people listening could even go and check it out or get involved or even follow some brilliant ones, I just wondered with your changing career did that come from the pandemic do you think or do you think this would have happened anyway because I know the great resignation was upon us and I, and it, and I felt that I was watching lots of people change up their career over the last few years did that have anything to do with the change or I think I think it would have happened anyway but it might not have happened as soon as it did I think because I I, I live out in the middle of nowhere in the country and and of course I pretty much work from home now and, and my my colleagues are on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, and I think if you'd have told me pre-pandemic that that's a setup that I could enjoy working from home, sort of being alone on a startup, um, I'm not sure that I would have felt so confident. 
but but because of covid one of the only only um sort of positive things to come out is i think it made a lot of people realize a couple of things one you know, and I, I wrote about this, that the city is not your identity. And actually, I always felt that to feel that I was part of it, to feel that I was relevant, I had to have some sort of umbilical cord to London. And I didn't feel that post-COVID. I didn't feel like that anymore. Um, and I think that's an age thing. But but yeah, I think it probably just accelerated it as as it did accelerate a lot of things for, for a lot of people. Yeah, because I love that newsletter you wrote about leaving a job kind of almost just before you feel like you should like you're almost jumping when things are actually maybe comfortable and I couldn't help but think of your book The Discomfort Zone and how you've always been someone who wants to feel slightly uncomfortable or slight discomfort and challenged in in what you're what you're doing even though being flexible is obviously something that makes a lot of us feel more autonomous which is important but um but is that right Do do you still want that discomfort a little bit? Yeah because I think for me personally, I guess what I've discovered about myself is that I get joy and happiness. It's purpose. Purpose is sort of what drives me. And I feel while I am slightly challenged, I'm working towards a goal. And actually, I mean, they know this, you know, having personal projects is really important um, to feeling fulfilled and, and whatever happy means. Um, so, yeah, so I've always been sort of leaving the party while it's still good. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been very good at that. Even, of course, if you look back over your shoulder and everybody's still having a lot of fun, I'd never sort of had, um, you know, FOMO ab- about that. And and also because, Emma, the truth is I'm a great believer in you You can't have everything. You, you can't... Um, you know, go to the ballet class and go to the party. You've made a decision and I made a decision to leave magazines. And part of being an adult is owning that decision and going, right, I'm, I'm going to make a go of this now. So I'm quite good at not looking back through rose-tinted spectacles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am good at leaving when it's still rosy. And, and I think that's quite nice because if you leave a career when you still are deeply in love with it, um, when you still love it ra- rather than deeply in love with it, I think. Um, I think that's sort of the best for everyone, actually. And that's how I felt about magazines. I, when I left, um, it was probably slightly too early, but it was a nice parting, actually. Yeah. I remember a piece that I think Lottie Jeffs wrote years ago about grief and when you leave a job. And I always feel like, weirdly, that I never really had that. But I do understand that you're in a relationship with your job a lot of the time. And it actually takes a lot of um, well, shifting your your identity. And I feel like hopefully we're in a time where we can be freer and we don't need to have like a stamp on us to be like, this is who we are. Because we are, I think, looking at who we are behind the scenes a bit more. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think it is like, it is a relationship with your job actually. And I think sometimes like those best breakups are the ones where it's just run its course and you still have these wonderful memories and it never went rancid and you own the ending. You both walk away going, that was lovely. Thank you, you know, for, for looking after me. Um, and, and I think those are wonderful breakups and I think they're wonderful ways to end, um, careers before before you begin something else actually yes, that's so true that's actually a really good analogy because in any relationship waiting till the bitter end is just not it's terrible not great um so the power of newsletters I really wanted to talk to you about this because obviously in your new role as well it's really an exciting time for the growth I feel like newsletters are just 
everywhere and it's exciting because it's like more the merrier which is what i really like about newsletters i'm subscribed to so many different ones and they add so much to my life and it's actually changed my relationship with my email weirdly because email for me was always like a anxious place <laughs> work people chasing me and now i open my inbox and actually i've got so much in there that i can't wait to read and even in 2015, I think it was, with Lena Dunham's newsletter, Lenny Letter. And, That's right. You know, it, I've I've loved the newsletter format for years and years and years. Um, but could you talk a little bit about kind of where we're at now? Because it does feel like this open market and there's a lot of opportunity. Yeah, I think that's right. I think... I think there was a phase when people thought newsletters, so they were wonderful and joyful. And I remember when Lena Dunham started hers and then people started to go, they're a bit old fashioned, aren't they? And of course, it's all it's all come round again. Um, I, I think the amazing thing about the newsletter economy is that, as you said, anybody can start one and you can treat it like a full-time job or you can treat it as a hobby or you can treat it as simply a creative outlet that maybe goes to your friends and family and, and hopefully people beyond. Um, but there is this thriving um, there's this thriving world of newsletters and Substack started as a newsletter platform and, and it will always be a newsletter platform because it's predominantly about the words. But now I would say it's more like a mini media empire. So it's an individual having their, because on Substack you can host podcasts, you can do voice memos, you can host video um, and it's all sort of based around your newsletter. So what you have is anybody can sort of be their own Cosmo or anybody can be their own L. And the difference is, and this is the bit I suppose that I really like, is that when I used to put a magazine out, so so two things would happen. You'd put a magazine out every month and you would think about ideas. You know, you you, you were sort of highly skilled in anticipating what people, in my case, what women would want to read about. But it was always just gut instinct. You had no idea, of course. Um but with newsletters, particularly on Substack, you 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 see all the emails of the people it's going to, and they talk back to you. So you know a a lot about their lives. Um, there's a constant dialogue between newsletter writer and newsletter reader, and that not only shapes sort of your writing. It can do. You don't have to, of course, but it creates an intimacy that. I never had with my audience when I was editing magazines. I had these big numbers of people that my work went out to, but I couldn't tell you that much about them. And I started my newsletter uh, like a month ago, The particularly the paying subscribers, because you can have free subscribers and you can have paying subscribers. The paying subscribers, I know most of their dogs' names. If they choose to tell me, of course, I know sort of where they live in the country. I know, like, I know so much about them. And, you know... It's that's a very I think it's a very unique relationship where you have the content creator um, being so close to their audience and sometimes the audience dictating what the content creator writes for them. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've certainly not experienced that anywhere else. And, and I think, you know, I think in the sort of current culture, having that proximity to people that whose lives you are interested in, I think I think it's really valuable. It's a, it's a nice place to be. I think in a world of sort of social media and, and, and you know, cancelling and inverted cultures where, where everything feels quite tough at the moment and people are scared and nobody really feels like they're having their arms put around them. I think the newsletter, it can just be a nice place to be, I think. Yeah, I definitely feel that it's a place for community and connection and 
having people who want to be there so you're going to have less trolling and you're going to have less people confused at what you're putting out because they've actually subscribed to it and I really really love that and I know from over the years working in magazines whoever the editor was I always picked up on the fact that one of the most enjoyable parts of the job it seemed was the letters that were coming in or the you know, at the, at the front of the magazine where you would sort of highlight people's voices. But that was like the only way that that dialogue was happening. Yeah. And that seems really old school now. Yeah. And now it's kind of completely ramped up. I guess my question would be, though, if you are very, you have that really, um, uh, the proximity is closer with the with the reader. Do you then have to have a boundary there of like, you can't have access to me all the time? Yeah. And, and, and that is, I was talking to someone about this the other day. This all comes down to sort of the individual and you have to decide. And I would say this to anyone, whether you're starting a social media account or whether you're starting a newsletter or whether you're starting a job, decide what you're willing to give away because people will take and take if you allow them to. So you have to be very, um, you have to be very careful with that stuff. I'm at an age where I sort of feel not duty bound, but but I sort of feel at 43, there are some things that I've learned that I think are worth sharing. And if that means being vulnerable and accessible in perhaps a way that editors are not deemed to be, or ex-editors, of course, now, um, I'm okay with that. But there's a lot of people for whom sharing details of their personal life, that's not for them. And that's um, completely with merit. So yeah, you've got to decide really early on what, what you're going to do, because um yeah, some some people don't want it to be that intimate. I mean, it can be as intimate as you want it to be. I think that's the thing. Yeah. It's an interesting time we're in, and this is just me being really nosy and curious, but what are your thoughts on the fact that if we're going to have this sort of level playing field, like every everyone could have a po- podcast, everyone could have a newsletter, which I've always been a real champion of, and it's really how I've made my career is like this kind of no gatekeepers approach and just putting myself out there. But where will the sort of validity or the like the verification of sort of the stamp of approval, I suppose, if everyone's just like the same, you know, without having um, like mainstream TV, I think is going to completely change. Magazines are going to completely change. It's almost like there's no mainstream traditional stuff. Well, you're right with there being no gate, because I think in the end I decided, well, why am I gatekeeper? What have I done apart from, obviously I've got a lot of experience, but I think when there is a level playing field, of course, there's there, there then becomes a huge amount of content. But then when I look at mainstream television now and I see all the competitors it's got in the market, and I'm not just talking about places with huge budgets like Netflix, I'm talking about um, YouTube. And so what I would say is what that should do is make everybody's game get better. Because if, you've, if you're in a world of, of fierce competition where everybody's competing for attention, surely everybody wins because you have to go, I've just got to be undeniably brilliant. I've got to be better and better. So I think in not having gatekeepers, the s- cynical people could say, oh, well, where's it going to end? You know, it's sort of a race to the bottom. But in a way, I think it could be a race to the top because actually those who are who are producing the best content, those are the ones you would hope, who are going to rise to the top. So I think everybody rises together, I would like to think. So 
a great way of looking at it. And it means that people who are really making great content on YouTube, they deserve to then be platformed even even more so. If and then brilliant. be kind of, you know, then big mainstream production companies can go, you're doing a great job. Let's fund it even further. And that's really exciting. But then sometimes it doesn't work, doesn't it? Because those gatekeepers, I, I've often noticed there are people on YouTube. Um, I can't remember, there was a young guy who used to go and you can see this is a recurring theme in my household. There was a young guy, he used to go and taste test chicken. I think it was chicken um, in like Croydon. And then Channel 4 commissioned him to do a show. And I don't think the show was a massive success. So, so, but what he was doing on YouTube was phenomenal. Um, and so that's interesting because you'd think, well, the gatekeepers have decided that's so good. We think this is real talent. We're going to put it on our platform now. But something was lost in that. So the gatekeepers in a way now, sort of, they are not the sort of, um, well, they're not the gatekeepers of what audiences want. Mm. And I think that is interesting. And I think a lot of those people on YouTube, it might not even be, you might argue until it's not the best quality in the world, but actually if they understand their audience, then it's brilliant really. And it, and it deserves to be successful. It's funny, it reminds me of when, you know, that feeling of when you discovered a band that's that's um, quite small and you've got the T-shirt and you're like really proud to follow them and then they go and get this like major record deal and it's all really shiny and you're like, oh, I, I liked you before. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a sense of that, which is quite nice. And to circle back to, I guess, what we were talking about and also the theme, I suppose, of this episode I feel that that goes hand in hand with people wanting more of purpose and more passion projects. If you are feeling lost in your career, what better way in a way to kind of inspire yourself again and be like, what do I actually want to do? What what could my career look like? How can I make this better? One of those things could be being creative outside the job, do you think? Or bringing that into the job? Yeah. I mean, talking about newsletters again and writing or, or whatever it might be to that person. I think that's right. I, I think um, having a creative outlet, if you're in a difficult job, sometimes the remedy is just having a creative outlet. I think sometimes people make the mistake of demanding from their job, I need to be creative. So therefore, you've got to fix this job and change it so that so I've got creativity in my job. The truth is not all jobs offer a creative out outlet. Um, and the world can't always bend to what you want. That is the reality. As much as you would like it to, being a, I think being an adult, a responsible adult, is not expecting the world to bend to you. So the best thing you can do is is figure out, well, actually, if I just need a creative outlet, maybe there is, maybe, you know, I'll take up a hobby. But of course, I mean, this is sort of artfully bringing it back to newsletters. Um, but how amazing to have a hobby, which is a creative outlet that can potentially pay you as well, because you know, not everyone is a writer, but but with Substack, if you're a writer or if you're a podcaster, you have a creative outlet and your audience pay you. So so you can end up with a creative outlet, which makes your day job feel much more um, much more bearable, I suppose. But you're also sort of developing this creative outlet, which also is sort of turning into a side hustle because you're making money from it. So in essence, it's sort of, one would imagine, win-win. Yeah. It is. And it's um, really fascinating talking to you about it because you're really in it at the moment. And, and there's so much happening behind the scenes, which will be announced in, in coming months or, or however long. So people should keep their eye on Substack. And what, where should they go to sort of see all the announcements coming and everything? Well, anyone can start a Substack. Anyone. Um, my advice would be think about two things. If you have a niche that you think the world is not interested in. The reality is you will have an audience. Most niches have audiences. Um, think about what brings you joy because 
to have a to have a substack i think the best people are committed and you're only committed if you write about things that you really feel passionately um about so think about what it is that get wakes you up in the morning and that you want to share with the world um and you can just go to the website and actually um you can there's a i think there's a button in the top right hand corner called resources and also what substack has in there they list all their fellowships they're doing constant fellowship programs for people uh where people if you've had a substack for a couple of months you can join things like um the substack grow program the substack go where they're basically teaching you best practices to grow your audience um so yeah i mean it's as simple as that you can set up a substack in literally three minutes um and then what you have to do after that is you just have to get the word out there. You know, all these all these communities that so many of us have spent years building on Instagram, on Twitter, sometimes on YouTube. I don't have a YouTube channel, but I've got a Twitter, I've got a, a Twitter um, account which has got like 12,000 people in, haven't used it for years. But at some point, I was working really hard on that. On Instagram, we all do so much for free on there to build our community. But of course, the minute you decide to leave those platforms, the community vanishes overnight. At Substack, you have everyone's email, so you get to keep your community. Even if you leave Substack, you still have your community. So my advice to people would be use all those sort of scattered communities you've got bring them all together and just say to people, if you're interested in starting a Substack, this is just go, look, what's going to what's going to get them to jump from your Instagram to your Substack because it's not going to be hi guys I've got a Substack follow me it's going to be telling them what you're going to find on my Substack that you can't find on my Instagram and so I'll give you an example with me I just put from now on my most personal writing and thoughts are only ever going to live on on Substack and if that's the part of me that you're interested in come over and and join the conversation so I think um, if you if you do start a Substack, think about how you're going to move your audiences over. Um, it, it's a really good way to look at it, but mm. but mainly just have fun. And I think you know with newsletter platforms, and I can only speak from Substack, but the people who follow you on Substack, particularly the people that choose to pay you money. They are like your super tribe and they're there because they support you. They're interested in what you've got to say. They might not always agree with it and they're there to sort of have a community and a relationship. So you tend to find if you're somebody who finds Twitter quite stressful and and is not comfortable perhaps with the dramas on Twitter, I'm certainly not. We're finding on Substack that doesn't tend to be that. It tends to be a sort of grown-up place for thoughtful conversations, um, either with the writer of the newsletter, but mainly actually um, between the followers. The, the conversations they have amongst themselves, sometimes that's the most seductive thing of all. That's so, so nice. We need more of that, don't we? More of the sort of the nice part of the internet. So thank you so much for coming on Very and welcome. chatting to me again. We'll make this a... I don't know, every three years? Every three years, yeah. Good <laughs> Thank plan. you so much. Very welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Emma. Hello, and thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did and you enjoyed the topics and the themes and the conversation, then come over to my Substack page, the hyphen. I've left the link in the show notes below and we can carry on the conversation. I would love to see you over there and Farah and I will be hanging out in the comment section for a bit as well. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast.